The war between Russia and Ukraine has dragged on for a year now. It started when Russia invaded its neighbor, February 24th, 2022. This was after President Putin declared a special military operation seeking the, quote, demilitarization and denazification of Ukraine. Hanna Palomarenko was in her flat in her hometown of Dnipro, Ukraine, that morning. She'd gotten up early and was scrolling through her phone. And I started checking the chats, like friend chats, family chats, where people started texting about that the war has started. Honestly, I, I, it's not like I didn't believe, but it was something surreal for me. I thought, like, it's some exaggeration. It can't happen for real. And then it, I think it was about 6 a.m., maybe even earlier, when I heard the first explosion. I think at that time the missile hit the airport in Dnipro. Well, so it's quite far, but I could hear the sound. At the time, Hanna was an English teacher doing online classes for kids. Her first class of the day was set to begin. She didn't know what to do, so she stuck to her day's schedule. So I turned on Zoom and I texted all my students like, if you want to join the class, I will be there. No one joined the class that day. None of them. It was, in fact, the end of the life Hanna had known and the beginning of a different one. I'm Rachel Martin. This is Up First Sunday. It is impossible to absorb how many lives have been changed irrevocably because of this war. Hanna, for one, is no longer an English teacher in the city of Dnipro. She's now a translator and producer for NPR in Ukraine. And she's been to some of the hardest hit areas of the country. My colleague Leila Fadl talked with Hanna recently about what the last year has been like for her. Hanna told Leila that after the Russians invaded, she felt she had to do something to help. By the second week of fighting, she was running a group chat room for the people of Dnipro. They created the city chats where you can follow the air raid siren because it wasn't heard in all the areas of the city. And so I sat next to the municipal guards who received the signal when there was the air raid siren. And I just texted to the city chats. Wow. It brought some, uh, some order to my life because I had some shifts. And uh, so my only task was to listen to the municipal guards and to text to the chats. So you were um, warning the city of possible strikes. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> In those first weeks, did you think that a year later you would be talking about the war still happening in your country, Russian forces still in your country? Um, No. First of all, I didn't expect to talk about war uh, at all. And the second thing, I I didn't believe that it would last for so long. I couldn't uh, believe that it would last for more than a couple of months. And yet, just recently, you had intense missile strikes in your city, right? That killed lots of people, dozens of people. Yeah. Um, at that time, I was in Kharkiv. Of course, I was checking the news every minute. It doesn't matter where I am. I always check the news. <laughs> it's part of my work now. Of course, I have the chats with my friends who heard that, who were quite close in that area. So, A lot of my friends are still volunteers and they rushed there and they sent me the messages when they said like, oh, Anya, we can hear people screaming from under the rubble. And I think the next day after that or 
two days later, we went there with a team. And I thought it would be the most difficult time for me to work there because it's in my native city. Mm. At the moment when the woman, for example, who was talking to us started to cry, I just focused on the translation. I thought like, okay, from the you know point of view of grammar, how would I translate this? And it helped mm. me to not to get too close emotionally with mm. those people. I know I brought us forward to the present day, but I'm going to back us up a little bit more. We talked about the weeks after you're volunteering, you're warning the city of air raid alerts, and eventually you become a journalist and translator and have been working with us at NPR. How did that transformation happen? Because you're doing that now. You are reporting on the war in your country and informing an American audience on what's happening there. How did you make that decision and why did you continue until now? Uh, honestly, before war, if somebody asked me, would you like to be a translator, for example? I always said, no, <laughs> it's boring. And I'm a teacher and I always <laughs> want to be a teacher. Teaching is the only thing that I can do and I love doing. After the war, when I started volunteering, it gave me some meaning. You know, when you read the news, you get the information from only one angle. When you are there, you see everything, all the details. And then what is more important, you help to, to tell it to American audience or to the world. And that's what actually gave me meaning and motivation and has helped me a lot and still helps me a lot. So in this war, you found a new purpose. Yeah. Yeah, wow. uh, exactly. But also you've had to now go across your country reporting on the most horrific things that are happening, the worst day of people's lives, people being pulled out from buildings, as you described, in your own city. And I just wonder, you know, what that is like for you because it's your country. It depends. Uh, it depends on what to focus on. And also yeah. this work gives you the chance to see everything, not only the bad things, but mostly I've seen a lot of sorrow, you know, and tears and uh, and deaths, honestly. But also it gives you the chance to see how people overcome it. This is what is the most important for me yeah. uh, because it happens in my country. Coming up, a conversation about Ukraine's unexpected war successes. And we'll return to Hannah's story. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Martin, and this is Up First Sunday. I'm going to bring in my friend and colleague, Frank Langfitt. He's NPR's London correspondent, and Frank has been reporting on the war in Ukraine since Russia invaded almost a year ago. He's in Kiev and joins us now. Frank, thanks for being here. Hey, Rachel. Great to be here. So we just heard from a woman you know, NPR's translator in Ukraine and producer, Hanna Palomarenko. Yeah. <laughs> she told us that, you know, most of her friends... And she never imagined that the war would still be going on a year later. I mean, I remember hearing this from people, too. I was in Kiev reporting just a few weeks before the war began, and I heard the same thing. You know, there was this low-level anxiety about the possibility, but still so many people thought that the West was overhyping the threat. And as convinced as the U.S. was about a Russian invasion, and they were convinced, even the Pentagon said the war wasn't going to last long. <laughs> Indeed, Rachel, you know, the Pentagon 
thought there would be a massive invasion. And a lot of the early analysis was that the Russians would pretty much overrun the Ukrainians in a matter of days. So the Russian military is really an overmatch for the Ukrainians. Ukraine's military is badly outgunned. and there's... It's likely that the Russians will take control of Kiev, but not without a fight. I, I saw Zelensky actually in Kherson well before the invasion, and he was more or less denying it at the time. So I'm not entirely sure exactly how well the Ukrainian government understood exactly what was going to happen. But it came as a shock to a ton of people that morning, and I even had trouble convincing some of the people I was with, even as the bombs came in that they were facing a full-scale invasion here uh, in Ukraine. So, Frank, when Russia finally did invade, right, February 24th of last year, what were the official assessments from Ukrainian leaders? Well, I don't think they really, they weren't really ready for the invasion of the North and in coming in from the South. And I think it was very dire. You know, I talked to a guy named Alexei Arostovich. He was a former advisor to the office of the Ukrainian president. And he was with Zelensky in these days at the beginning of the war. And he described to me how intimidating it was, how frightening it was to see the Russian columns coming out of the north. This is what he said. It was a huge number of Russian forces. It was about maybe 20 or 25 times more Russians than our defenders. We completely understand it's impossible to defend Kyiv. Hmm. And of course, as everybody knows, you know, Zelensky famously refused to, to leave. And Aristovich told me that after that, they just started handing out machine guns. And I think first five days, we will die. All in this, in this building, we will die. I mean, that, <laughs> there was like yeah. global concern over this, right? Yeah. That, that President Zelensky was going to be killed in a strike or assassinated. Yeah, and uh, let me tell you a story I've never been able to tell on the air before. I got here about 10, 12, at least like two weeks before the invasion. And one of the first nights I met a very well-placed retired diplomat from a NATO country who told me, over wine, Rachel, the Russians are coming, they're coming for Kiev, they're going to get him, and they have a long list of people they're going to kill and detain, and they're going to set up detention camps. I could never confirm that, but that was kind of what we were stepping into, some of us as journalists who were beginning to get this information. Mm. And sure enough, that was all entirely true. And this man that I was talking to, within a couple of days, he was in Poland. Wow. So as we all know now, Russian forces never really made it past the suburbs of Kiev. No. <laughs> what happened? What went wrong for them? Uh, what went wrong was that um, President Putin did not tell the Russian soldiers up in Belarus, north of Kiev that they were there actually preparing to invade Ukraine. They thought they were just there for training exercises, so they were not ready. And they only got word 24 hours before they launched the invasion. And that meant that they weren't really prepared psychologically or operationally. Mm -hmm. So as they headed south, they ran into all kinds of problems because they hadn't really planned or thought about this. And I was talking to Jack Watling. He's at the Royal United Services Institute in London. He's a very good analyst of the war. And he gave this example of the kinds of things that were happening. Platoon commanders were basically told, drive down that road until you get to X. Well, they didn't know where X was, especially since the Ukrainians are pulling down the street signs. Mm. And so we saw instances of Russian troops getting into the center of a town, not knowing where they were, getting out, trying to chat with the locals to work that out, not having their weapons loaded, and then being hit with artillery. And, and Rachel, I should mention that a lot of them had come from Siberia, and they were relying on maps that they picked up in Siberia that were from the 1980s. So they didn't have a lot of these towns on the map. So they didn't wow. quite necessarily know 
where they were. And they literally got out like you're asking for directions if you're just trying to get to the beach or something. Only it was the beginning of a massive war in <laughs> Europe. Now, I think the Russians, here's what their thinking was. They figured, listen, we can do this in 72 hours. We'll get him. We'll install a puppet. And it'll be too fast for the United States or the European Union or NATO to get together and do anything. And it'll be a fait accompli. Of course, as we all know, everything fell apart for the Russians. And the longer it went on, and especially as we saw the killings in Bucha, people being shot in the head, ordinary civilians with their hands tied, what happened... Um, basically in Europe, is people were absolutely outraged. And so they came together at NATO, at the European Union, in ways that I think Putin never imagined. Hmm. Okay, but Frank, why did Vladimir Putin assume that the West was going to be divided, that Europe and the U.S. were not going to approach this in the same way? I mean, in fairness to him, he'd, he'd seen some examples. I mean, if you, let's take Crimea. 2014, the Russians invade Crimea, take it over without firing a shot, and the West didn't really do much. Mm. I mean, honestly, he got away with it. Then with Afghanistan, the American retreat, that showed a lot of divisions between NATO allies. A number of NATO allies in Europe were very angry with the way that the U.S. just walked away and did it so quickly. Mm -hmm. And then the fact of the matter is the European Union, it's 27 members with many different agendas, and it's awfully hard to unify them. I've covered Brussels off and on for a number of years, and they're famously hard to get together because each country has, you know, they're, they're different, they have different agendas. Mm -hmm. The resilience that we all witnessed on the part of the Ukrainian people, right? It was just such this natural story of, of this underdog against Russia. Just the public story of what was happening there, did that serve to generate more actual support from the U.S. and Europe? Rachel, absolutely. Okay, so from talking to Ukrainian commanders, they told me that before the war, when they were asking for weapons, they even had private conversations. And the, the effective answer was, we think you're just going to lose them to the Russians anyway. I mean, that was it. So that's very painful for them to hear. It wasn't so a good they investment. Went out. They couldn't imagine that. No, they, they, just, they just thought it was going to be like Afghanistan. It's like, okay, mm -hmm. we'll give you all these weapons. They're going to end up in the hands of the enemy. It's going to be one more big embarrassment for the Americans and for NATO. But what you saw, and I remember it so distinctly as the missiles were coming in the first day, people came out of their homes and they came to defend their country and they lined up in community centers to get weapons, even if they had no training whatsoever. And the Russians did very poorly and the Ukrainians really overperformed. And I don't want to put this too crudely, but really, honestly, what happened is the Ukrainians earned those weapons. They mm. surprised NATO, they've surprised the Pentagon, and there was a certain realization, oh my God, these guys are, <laughs> they're stopping the Russians. Right. They're stopping them in the suburbs. And so yeah. then what you saw was this almost unprecedented flow of weapons, really mostly coming out of Poland, in these trucks to Kiev and beyond and down to the south. And, and so really, I mean, in a lot of ways, this was aid that was based on the performance that, you know, NATO and the United States saw on the battlefield. I was talking with David Quarry. He's Britain's ambassador to NATO in Brussels. And this is kind of the way that he put it. First of all, people have seen the Ukrainians succeeding and paying an enormous price to defend their country, to defend their freedoms. And secondly, people see the absolutely horrific cost that Russia is imposing on Ukraine at the moment. All right. So the West decided that the Ukrainians had earned this military support. But, you know, what kind of time frame is this commitment? We're now a year into the war and Russia hasn't let up. How long can Ukraine's military supplies hold out? 
Yeah, this is a big question. It's a question on the front lines. It's a question in Brussels that I've talked to both soldiers as well as as officials at NATO about. I'll give you an example. Based on public data, Ukraine has been firing 155 millimeter artillery shells so quickly that it would wipe out Britain's entire stock of that ammo in about eight days. So this is happening at an extraordinary rate. You know, uh, Jens Stoltenberg, the Secretary General of NATO, talked about this earlier this week, and and he basically says, you know, arms makers really need to expand production. Not least the need to provide more ammunition and uh, also how to ramp up uh, production uh, and strengthen our defense industry to be able to uh, provide uh, the necessary ammunition to Ukraine and also to replenish our own uh, stocks. At Rachel, let me just give a couple of examples of conversations I had recently in Brussels. Uh, I was talking to the Estonian ambassador at NATO. They have been sending howitzers and javelins even before the war, and they've already devoted 40% of their defense budget to Ukraine. So that gives you some sense of the pressure that it's putting on NATO allies. Germany's ambassador told me that his country's warehouses are pretty empty. Others said, and he said this as well, they're particularly worried that Ukraine could run short of surfaced air missiles. These, as we all know, are really important for shooting down Russian drones and missiles. And so far, amazing fact in this war is the Russians have never been able to get air superiority. If that were to happen, it would really change the battlescape. So what does this say about the degree to which Europe is prepared for a big land war like this? I mean, did they not have enough tanks, fighter jets, and other military armaments in these NATO countries to begin with? Yeah, so simply put, nobody saw a land war in Europe in 2022. After 9-11, everything was focused on a war on terror, which meant all these heavy weapons production lines in Europe, you know, a lot of them closed down because there was no demand for those weapons. And it was more focused on small arms and small units operating in places like Afghanistan. And so now you have basically tremendous demand on the front lines in Ukraine and not nearly enough supply to meet that. So uh, what are they doing about that? I mean, have they considered it a worthy enough investment to increase production of tanks and jets and all the stuff? Of course, of course. And everybody knows this in Brussels, and they talk about it all the time. The problem is we're talking about particularly sophisticated weapons like missiles. It can take two months to produce a missile. And the other thing is you don't have the production lines to do this. So the nub of this, Rachel, is... NATO allies saying, we need all these weapons. And some companies saying, okay, but we need multi-year contracts. It's going to cost us a lot of money. And I think in the back of their mind, you know, the companies are like, well, what if there's a ceasefire? And they worry about how much investment to make. So this also then becomes kind of a business model question as well. <laughs> Peace is bad for business? Is that what you're telling me, Frank? <laughs> I mean, this is how it works. I mean, it's not surprising that this gets incredibly complicated because, again, no one saw this coming. And so now what you have is NATO allies getting together and trying to pool their requests to make it easier and more financially viable for different companies to reopen production lines and to also be able to produce a lot of the same weapon. Because, you know, every NATO ally has some different weapons, with the mm-hmm. exception of things like the Leopard tanks. So if NATO's running out of military equipment, what about Russia? Is Russia running out of the equipment it needs to fight this? Yeah, both sides are under a lot of pressure. And one thing that is good for Ukraine is that Russia is still quite corrupt and very dysfunctional in terms of its supply chains. 
And one of the fears from the Ukrainian perspective and the NATO perspective is if the Russians get this organized, they'll actually be able to really put a lot of weapons in the field. But yes, both sides are under stress. One of the problems, though, is that there are a lot more Russians that are Ukrainians. Yeah. And that's a fear that I hear when I'm out deep in the Donbass. So tell me about that, though. You know, this is where the front line is. You were near there having conversations with the soldiers who are out there doing the fighting now. What are you hearing from them just about their their resources, where their heads and hearts are at? So they say ammunition is always a bit of a problem to varying degrees. Their real concern, and I just had a conversation with two very thoughtful recon officers who've been fighting since 2014 when Russia was backing the separatists and sending troops into the Donbass. And they are very concerned that Russia simply has too many people. Just to underscore that, the fear of people is they can just keep sending more young people into the country to die. Yeah. Rachel, Rachel, it is what they're doing. Yeah. I mean, it is really hard. The stories are absolutely, they're horrific. And I want to get off track here, but they told me that the Wagner Group, which as we know, works with Russian prisoners. They will send the prisoners towards the Ukrainian trenches and towards where they think Ukrainian positions are so that the Ukrainians will shoot them so that the very professional Wagner people in the back will now know where to fire. Hmm. I mean, that's what's happening. The big concern that the recon officers that I talked to had is the Russian numbers are just simply so large. And so on the Ukrainian side, what's happening there is they're conscripting a lot of soldiers. I've met some of these soldiers. I've been to training sessions, and I've a lot of them, they don't have much experience. Mm -hmm. They were working as builders, IT people sometimes, things like that. Yeah. They looked very frightened to me. And talking to these recon officers, they said that when they work with some of them, like when they get you know assigned to their team, they actually won't even fire their weapons. Mm. And so they say the big problem from their perspective is that the people who are highly motivated to fight the Russians came in the first two months of the war. Yeah. And now they're bringing in more and more of these soldiers. And the question is, how do you hold off this mass of Russians you know, without high numbers of really motivated soldiers? And, and I think that's a very legitimate question. And they were, you know, they were really worried. Frank Langfitt, he's NPR's London correspondent, and he has spent many months in this past year covering the war in Ukraine, from Ukraine. Frank, thank you so much for your perspective as we mark one year of this war. So obviously at this moment, this grim anniversary, there's a lot of attention on the war in Ukraine. But the truth is, attention wanes. Before she finished her conversation with NPR translator Hanna Palomarenko, my colleague Leila Fadel asked Hanna whether she was worried the world might begin to turn its attention elsewhere. That's the thing that I, I think my biggest fear. It's that one day everyone will get used to it. Because it's, it's not normal. I mean, it's something you shouldn't or you mustn't get used to. The war itself, wherever it is, uh, yeah. in Ukraine or somewhere else. Mm. Are you used to the war? Is the war part of your life normal now? Yeah, I'm afraid, yeah. Uh, when there is an air raid siren, I don't think, oh my God, a missile can strike my flat. I think, oh my God, the supermarket will be closed and I won't be able to, you know, to get my food shopping or the post office will be closed. Yeah. And sometimes when you think about it, you think, oh my God, we are used to it now. 
and it's not normal. I mean, it's the thing you you mustn't be used to. Do you see a day where you're not reporting on people being resilient, overcoming the sorrow, fighting, resisting? Do you see an end to this? I mean, I hope, yeah. I can't see it clearly, you know, because after 11 months, almost a year since it started, we've learned, I think all Ukrainians, not only me, not to make any plans. So, of course, it is hope, but the hope is different from a plan because you do not know when it happens uh, or how it happens. And I do believe, I have no doubts that the day of victory will come. Like, I imagine it as a fact, but I don't see any details of what uh, season it will be. Like, will it be hot outside or will it be winter? Where I will be at the moment when Ukraine declares or... uh, I don't know. Well, I know that this day will come, but I try not to give myself any details for this dream. That was Hanna Palomarenko. She's a translator and local producer working with NPR's international desk in Ukraine. You also heard reporting from Frank Langfit, NPR's London correspondent who's been reporting from Ukraine for much of the past year. This episode was produced by Audrey Wynn and edited by Jenny Schmidt. Reporting for this episode was brought to us by NPR's International Desk. Morgan Ayer and Danny Hajek were the producers, and Mark Katkov and Nishant Dahia, Barry Hardiman, and Natalie Winston were the editors. Up First Sunday is also produced by Justine Yam. Our supervising producer is Liana Simstrom, and Irene Noguchi is our executive producer. I'm Rachel Martin. Up First will be back tomorrow with all the news you need to start your week. Until then, have a great rest of your weekend. <laughs>